Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. At 1247, she asked 911 to please send the police now. You know, that day, I remember very vividly, it just got more and more tragic. You can imagine the very streets that these vehicles are all lining uh, are in front of families' homes that might have sent their kids to school here just yesterday. Tonight, they are letting some of those families beyond the barricade, one at a time, to approach the sign that is outside of the school. That day was very emotional. We had five families that transferred from Uvalde. We really want to make sure that our students and faculty felt safe. Thank you for being with us here on KWTX. I'm Lauren Westbrook alongside Megan Boyd. It has been one year since a massacre at Robb Elementary School took the lives of these 21 victims in Uvalde, Texas. Over the last year, many circumstances around the shooting and the response have come to light. But at the end of the day, every conversation that this tragedy has started all goes back to these 21 people. On the morning of May 24, 2022, an 18-year-old gunman with an AR-15 style rifle entered the school grounds of Robb Elementary in Uvalde at 11.30 a.m. Local law enforcement arrived on scene just five minutes later at 11.35, but did not enter the school to engage the shooter until 77 minutes later. The gunman was ultimately killed by law enforcement at 12.50 p.m., more than an hour after entering the property. In the days and months that followed, local law enforcement came under intense scrutiny for their response time, resulting in the termination of School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo. That tragedy sparked significant change in the last year for districts here in Central Texas. Last week, we gathered a panel of local officials to talk about how our schools are making the grade when it comes to school safety. And from left to right here, you'll hear from Marlin ISD Superintendent Dr. Daryl Henson, Axel ISD Superintendent Dr. J.R. Proctor, Temple ISD Superintendent Dr. Bobby Ott, and Temple Chief of Police Sean Reynolds, who serves Temple and Belton ISDs. Throughout the hour, we'll touch on several issues the panel discussed. We'll also hear from other local leaders and mental health experts. We begin with the debate over arming teachers. Educators across the country already participate in active shooter trainings like the one you're seeing here, but some school districts are taking that training a step further. Yeah, you can see here on this map that we have that Axtell ISD is 25 minutes away from the closest law enforcement office. Here you have Axtell High School and the McLennan County Sheriff's Office. As the superintendent in Axtell tells us, it's why his community wanted the option of extra protection even before the Uvalde shooting happened. He starts off our conversation. We're not scared to talk about um, our situation. You know, Dr. Henson and Marlon, they have a police department. 
um, in the in the city. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Ott, Temple ISD has a police department in Temple. Um, actual ISD, we are 25 minutes from a guaranteed response. Yes. So that means any phone call in, look at the timelines on these shootings. Okay. 25 minutes is an eternity. We began to seek out what is the ultimate level of training to go through. And at the end of that, we would make the decision. I'm gonna plug uh, CSAT, Combat Shooting and Training uh, Tactics in Nacogdoches, Texas. Uh, Paul Howe is uh, the person that, that puts, conducts that. Uh, he's ex-Delta Force. Um, he conducts this training for a lot of our law enforcement. We believed if we went through this training and asked him the questions, do you think we can do this? Do you think school board member that's a law enforcement agent and then the superintendent, if we went through that and everyone felt that we could do that successfully, we felt like tactically, if I am an armed person going into a building and I have no idea who is armed and I have no idea where they are, it is a deterrent. Did you see an increase in interest once the Uvalde shooting happened? We had already made the decision. We had already been a guardian school for uh, two years when Uvalde happened. So Uvalde had a law enforcement. You know, they had their police department. If that building had a guardian in place, when the person walked through that, when the shooter walked through that door, he would have met resistance immediately. It just becomes more and more tragic the more you know about the situation. Not for everyone. I'd, I'd like to transition to Dr. Ott and to Chief Reynolds. Right after this happened, you guys got together with community members, local representative, and city official to answer some questions, one of those being arming teachers in Temple ISD. I, wanna, I know you touched on it then, but give you a platform to kind of speak about how Temple is a different situation. Well, we don't have the, um, the response time issue uh, in Temple because of our fantastic police force, and we also have police officers on our campuses. Uh, so that changes the game for us. And in my, at least in my mind, in working with our board and community, there's a real fear. We, we know when police officers go into a building, their job is to eliminate the threat. And if they can't determine if that person is part of a Marshall program or not, <clears throat> they may inadvertently <clears throat> shoot a staff member or, you know, someone else uh, that's innocent. And so we didn't want to put that situation um, in the hands of our staff or our police department. Uh, because our response time is really good, at least our solution at this point is, if we feel like we need more guns in schools, then that means we need more police officers. Uh, that was a position we took, but we can afford to take that position because our response time is immediately, if someone comes into our school, they will be met with resistance right away. Uh, and, you know, unlike rural communities that maybe have a different challenge with, with response time. And that's the INISD. That's the independent, that's Absolutely. a community decision, school district decision, and you have to do what's right for your uh, families and your students and staff. In Marlin ISD, our response was, what is the best thing that we could do for our community? We are fortunate to have a local ISD police department, the city of Marlin police department, and the Falls County Sheriff Department, all within minutes away. So when discussing with our local and county officials, our school board, and our safety committee, we felt that the response time was not going to be an issue. We had to just make sure are we being visible? Are we being vocal? Are we trained on if we have suspicions? 
So we really put our focus on being proactive. Do our students and do our staff know what to do if something feels off? Because I would hate to go from feeling to reality. And we spent the time and energy, like I said, working with our local law enforcement at the city, ISD, and county level to develop succinct protocols on what to do if you have to do something. The tragedy in Uvalde highlighted the need to upgrade school campuses across the country. How local districts are using recent elections to improve infrastructure. Next. We're back with just a few examples of dated facilities in Marlin ISD. These pictures represent why leaders there pushed for a vote to use bond money to improve campus infrastructure. Temple ISD also had an election to improve its safety measures across campuses, resulting in the rendering of security vestibules that you see here. These are currently under construction in three campuses. We had three of our 15 campuses that were without security vestibules, meaning two sets of doors, entrance before you can go in. Uh, we just have one set of exterior doors, and once you're in, you have unfettered access on those three uh, buildings. We have two other campuses that have security vestibules, but uh, could probably be more secure. So obviously that was in the bond that passed, and uh, three of those will be finished uh, in about the next four weeks. So we're real excited about that. We've also done exterior door audits. I know all of us have, and we do them every week. Um, we actually worked with the police department that summer, and they came and walked all of our facilities, and they also looked at our crisis plans and gave input. We made adjustments. Uh, we've renumbered our doors uh, on all of our, uh, our exterior doors on all of our buildings to conform to the system that the police department is used to, because it's one thing to have a plan, but it's, it's another to execute. Are you satisfied with the changes that have been made so far? Are there any others that you're looking forward to making? Uh, there's some hardware uh, or an infrastructure changes that I would like to continue to see. Perimeter fencing is one, for example. Uh, I'd always like to see more uh, security officers and police officers, but uh, some of that, you know, we can talk about legislative pieces later on that. Um, and then there's some uh, education recommendations that have come out from our commissioner uh, not too long ago uh, that. Uh, you know, it's anything from window film that's supposed to be more protective uh, around front entrances and, and some of it's fencing related. But at this point, the grant money that has come out for that uh, is far short uh, for school districts to meet the recommendations. So we're really hoping for uh, some safety uh, monies to come out of this legislative session. Dr. Rott, when he's talking about um, hopefully the legislature will show, you know, provide some relief, um, we I know that we are still putting the money into student safety, into facility upgrades. It would be nice that we don't have to sacrifice uh, educational opportunities, uh, you know, enrichment opportunities. And so I'm glad to do it. Um, I think we all are. Um, but I think it's also uh, pretty apparent at this point that a dedicated fund for campus safety is necessary. And looking at our facility, Marlin Elementary and Middle School was built in the late 90s. However, Marlin High School was built in 1972 without any significant upgrades since 1972. The number of exterior doors, the number of doors that are not fully functional, along with 
the multitude of keys and access points, it was, or excuse me, it currently is multiple. Yeah. So we are fortunate that our community supported a bond this past November. And uh, the bond passed on Tuesday. I think I was in Dr. Ott's office on Wednesday morning to ask him, so what are the things that we can do and how do we ultimately execute our bond package? The first thing we have to make sure is that we have safety and security upgrades to all three of our campuses. Despite the campus being built in 1972, we have children in 2023 who occupy that space every single day. And knowing that our doors, our windows are pretty susceptible to anything that can happen. So right now we are in the design phase of just making sure, working with our community and our local law enforcement to keep Marlin Elementary, Marlin Middle, and Marlin High School as safe as possible despite the age of the buildings. You heard them talk about it there. These districts are trying to advance safety measures, but they're expressing the issue of funding. Right now, the state gives each district less than $10 per student for safety spending. After the break, why they say lawmakers need to increase that allotment. If the government wants to make this a priority, there should be an annual allotment every single year if safety is, in fact, job one. The Texas legislature is currently debating school safety measures. Every member of our panel agreed that they want to see more funding out of our state capital. Right now, our safety allotment in Texas is $9.72 a child. Uh, that is a small expense for something that should be um, job one in education, because without that, the rest of it doesn't get there. So uh, first of all, there's a uh, you know, there's will and desire to to have that go up to over $100 a student, uh, especially with the commissioner's recommendations on infrastructure and so forth. We can't fund those things unless that allotment goes up. Uh, so we're hoping to see that revenue increase. Uh, we, we have a pretty good idea what we need to do with it. Uh, and if we don't, we can work with our safety committee uh, and our community and our campuses and staff uh, to come up with those plans. So I think that would be the first thing. And and I would just really encourage, um, you know, we, we all know that legislatively, there's a lot of bartering that happens through the session. Um, I think that, I think there are some items that should never be on the bartering table ever. And this is one of them. Uh, this needs to be treated separately and aside. It doesn't need to be hijacked, uh, it doesn't need to be thrown in a special session, uh, and we don't need to operate safety off soft money. We don't need a grant. You know, Santa Fe happened, we had a grant, $140,000 in Temple. That doesn't do you much. Uh, infrastructure's nice, but you know who does the best job at taking care of people? People. And that money is not soft. That's every year, right? It's reoccurring costs, police officers, security officers, social emotional learning counselors. These are all people at cost every year. So if the government wants to make this a priority, there should be an annual allotment every single year if safety is in fact job one. And that, that revenue or that expense should be much higher than it is. And then at that point, let us work locally to take care, um, to take care of our families and our kids. We want money we can plan around each year that's a priority. In Texas school 
finance and funding, there are certain maintenance of efforts that we have to have for things like special education because it's a priority. Like career and technical education, it is a priority. So we believe that safety itself also needs to be a priority at a higher rate than $9.42 per student. We really want to make sure that we are able to once again keep our children safe and it is going to cost financial and human resources to do that. Just this week, the Senate approved a school safety bill adding requirements for districts when it comes to school safety. Unfortunately, as the bill currently stands, the allotment per child only went up a few cents to $10 per student. The House still has time to make edits to this, but if you head to KWTX.com, we have an article that details the laws that have been introduced since the Uvalde shooting and where the money in some of these bills is actually going. And we also spoke to Waco ISD about that safety allotment. At the time, Superintendent Dr. Susan Kincannon was not optimistic. There's, there is some funding that's identified in House Bill 3, but that hasn't passed. We're not sure that it will. Um, but we, we'd like to see an investment in both, both safety and mental health. After the break, we'll hear more from local districts who couldn't participate in the panel but have unique approaches to school safety, including adding some new technology. We are back with our one hour school safety special, taking you to Waco ISD, where leaders continue to enhance safety measures one year after the Uvalde shooting. They added clear backpacks and metal detectors to some campuses. Newsense Ali Kadlabar explains how the district is planning to use some new technology next year to advance those efforts. Since that tragic day one year ago, Proposed classroom designs that consisted of glass walls sparked concerns among parents and board members. We're seeing active shooters more and more, unfortunately, and in that incident, uh, I wondered where would our kids go. A hoax social media post about an active shooter on campus left students, staff, and parents on edge. We don't know what's going on. I just want to get my kid out of there. And safety measures intensified when weapons were found on campus. I've never received as many calls uh, and emails. As the school year closes, administration continues to strengthen safety measures. Uh, anytime anything happens, you begin to reevaluate what you've got and what you might need to be working on. Weeks after four guns were found on Waco High's campus, the district installed metal detectors in high schools. What we've observed is that um, it's made a difference in terms of overall climate. Now they're looking to the future, replacing those metal detectors with Evolve Express, artificial intelligence sensors that only alerts security when a threatening item is picked up by the system. They can walk side by side. It doesn't need to be single file. And then you're only stopped um, to be searched in the event that something alerts that AI or sensor technology. That means no long lines, no emptying pockets, and a more targeted search of flagged items. So it's putting a red box around the potentially threatening item while it's still concealed. Ken Cannon says when students come back to campus in the fall, the new sensors will be there. So it's a game changer. It really 
um, really has made a will make a huge difference. A difference that's now part of a new norm. Reporting in Waco, Ali Kadabar, KWTX News 10. Another local district is putting an emphasis on creating more opportunities for students and parents to report suspicious activity, like with this anonymous alert website. News 10's Madison Herber takes us to Belton ISD with more on those efforts. After Uvalde, Belton ISD brought in just under 100 community members to brainstorm new ideas. From that meeting, they walked away with two prominent areas to improve. The first, making students, staff, and parents feel more comfortable sharing suspicious activity. They talked a lot about how we empower students to say the right things and to talk to people when needed. The second area was to revamp the resources for people to relay those concerns. Anonymous alerts can be used by students, parents, community members, and it's a program basically that people can easily access on our website where if you see something that's of concern, you say something. To do that, they've encouraged the use of their anonymous alert system that was already in place. That gives students and parents sometimes the ability to be able to report something without fear of their name being attached to it. They've also formed student-led safety teams where kids can turn to their peers to report something. We brought student voice into that. We're dealing with the precious resource that families have, and it's their kids. In Belton, Madison Herber, News 10. There's been a bigger focus on law enforcement response plans after mistakes made in Uvalde. After the break, how local officers are planning and strategizing one year later. At 1247, she asked 911 to please send the police now. You know, that day, I remember very vividly, it just got more and more tragic. You can imagine the very streets that these vehicles are all lining uh, are in front of families' homes that might have sent their kids to school here just yesterday. Tonight, they are letting some of those families beyond the barricade, one at a time, to approach the sign that is outside of the school. That day was very emotional. We had five families that transferred from Uvalde. We really want to make sure that our students and faculty felt safe. Welcome in. If you're just joining us to our Making the Grade special on school safety one year after Uvalde. Law enforcement's response to that incident has been highly scrutinized over the last year for their hesitation to confront the gunman. Hey, we're going in. We stay here. What are we doing? Gonna get in there. He's keep shooting. We gotta get in there. No one knows kids or anything else like that. But supposedly the victims are here. I'm not 100. percent There's a bunch of information flying around. It was more than an hour that officers waited outside the room where children were being murdered before they stepped in. As we told you earlier, several people have been fired as a result of those actions. It's prompted local departments to reevaluate their response plans. Temple Chief Sean Reynolds leads that discussion. 
We train at a variety of campuses uh, throughout the year. Uh, we train in a, in a variety of sessions. And following May 24th, even before we knew all the facts and details, I had ordered all of our personnel to go back through the state required alert training. It's a two-day training. It's a heavy lift, um, but we were able to do so. Uh, we were able to use some of the facilities. We utilized churches. Um, the unfortunate circumstances in these is that it can be any facility. Uh, it's not necessarily always a school. One of the key things to uh, all of this type of planning is is having a good working relationship, good communication between law enforcement and the school districts. I, I think one of the challenges that we all face is, as humans is we, we are looking for the one thing that solves everything. And I think you've, we've already heard just the difference in variance, geography matters, time matters. Um, staffing of police departments matters. And so, um, yeah, we have an incredible relationship. Uh, Dr. Ott and I talk uh, quite often, as well as Dr. Smith with BISD, and it's key. Trainings are pretty much led by our local law enforcement agencies, because as was shared by Dr. Ott, whenever they do come onto um, our campuses, everyone understands that they are in charge, but we have to make sure that we have done things along the way according to our protocols so that they can take over and handle any situation that might present itself. Yeah. It is constant and ongoing training around your standard safety response protocols. We really want to make sure that all campuses receive the same training. I believe as a leader, my number one role is to be clear. And so is it clear what does it look like for a lockout? What does a lockdown look like? making sure that the terminology is consistent amongst all staff and law enforcement and so that we're just communicating things clearly. Dr. Proctor, can you speak to the training that went on in Axtell and may continue to go on, like what that process is like for teachers and staff as they go through it? Um, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, you're talking about training specifics and tactics. You want to be careful of the things that you share. Um, but just going through scenarios, um, putting them uh, in a position where they feel safe, but they can go through a scenario that potentially uh, could manifest at some point. Um, it's an eye-opening experience. Um, you need to do them, to do them frequently. Um, I know that Marlin ISD and Temple ISD never have to hire anybody new, uh, but occasionally uh, when, when you bring in new personnel, you need to stay sharp and you need every person, no assumptions, every person needs to go through uh, this training on your campus with the people that they work with, around the kiddos that they're uh, teaching, and uh, build that level of trust and understanding of what's, what we need to do in the, in the event of a crisis. You, you just execute your plan and, and you, know, you hope you never have to, but if you do, um, you know, you're ready and that you're practicing your plan. And that's probably something that we didn't do as well before you Valdi, just to be honest with you. Uh, you know, Chief Reynolds mentioned the tabletop exercises. Well, that came from him, that was his idea. Uh, my senior leadership team meetings, in full disclosure, the first couple of years I was hired, we weren't doing those. Uh, now we do them. We do them in our senior leadership team meetings. Our campus is doing, we have a huge one uh, plan this summer that involves many entities in the county that we're all going to sit around from the hospital to the county police department and we're going to talk through what we do if this happens and this happens we had plans um, 
we would go through those exercises, but really sitting down thoughtfully talking about different scenarios, uh, we have really ratcheted that up. And so when I communicate to the public, I tell them, yeah, we have plans, but they're not stagnant. Mm -hmm. We make them active in a proactive way because we're constantly talking about it. They're breathing, right? And we don't have to go through an incident to improve, okay? We can, we can go through a scenario and simulate it, and we can improve that way. We've seen a disturbing trend in the last year. Fake active shooter calls kept law enforcement busy and parents on edge. More on how school districts and law enforcement handle those calls when we come back. The area has seen an increase in a disturbing trend active shooter hoax calls. We've seen it happen at both universities and high schools. You may remember Waco High School was put on lockdown last fall after a call of an active shooter came in. It prompted a massive police response. Officers searched the entire campus. Hundreds of parents flocked to the school looking for answers. It was all part of a hoax. And it turned out the districts across the state got similar calls making similar threats that same day. We talked to the panel about the increase in this trend. Social media is um, interesting. Uh, it can create all kinds of unique challenges uh, for both school districts as well as police departments. Um, the hoaxes that we've seen um, generally come from a spoofed number. They're very challenging to track down if we're ever able to track down the original source of those information. Um, but many of them are just this phenomenon on social media, TikTok challenges, um, those types of things. It is something we pay attention. Our response doesn't change. Our response is the same until we are 100% satisfied that it is a hoax, which means you're not only tying up resources that would be available for the general community, you're messing up the school day for students, uh, but you are gonna get a healthy response from law enforcement officers until we ensure that the situation is safe, whether that's at a city hall event, a local college, or any of our school facilities. Um, that's what we plan and practice for, and oftentimes they occur in the same day so the information hasn't made its way from one district or one state to another. Uh, and your local law enforcement agency is not gonna be aware, probably like your school administrators, that this in fact may be a hoax. Um, and so I think, I think it is something that we track and monitor. Um, and I'm not sure that I know how to stop them. Sure. I was just gonna say, what do you tell parents? Because over the last year, we've seen several of these in our viewing area. And it can't be helpful to law enforcement to have 500 parents crowding a parking lot um, or shutting down a city, but they're wanting to know their child is okay. Mm -hmm. So how have y'all's communication plans changed to, to reach parents and, and let them know what's going on, especially if it's a hoax? Yeah, so uniquely I'm here with Dr. Ott and we have a, a pretty good structure to our communication system that our staff, if it's a law enforcement or law enforcement related activity that occurs on a campus, our folks are gonna get together, determine what the best way is to disseminate the information. We'll likely hit press releases, social media um, to make folks aware. But that still is not enough to keep parents from showing up. And um, the, one of the important things that I would remind folks of is that we've initially got a job to do to try and make sure that everything is stable and safe. And if uh, it is the real event, 
that we have access to do those types of things. But I certainly get the apprehension uh, of parents these days when they hear of a hoax um, or, God forbid, it's the real thing. Coming up, we'll learn how districts support a student's emotional needs. We will also hear from two mental health professionals working in Central Texas schools. Protecting the school grounds and ensuring campuses are secure is one component of school safety, but a whole child approach involves consideration of mental health and well-being. Our panelists talk about schools and their responsibility to provide support. In our discussion, they each describe some of the actions they've taken. I am very passionate when it comes to mental health, emotional health, and just social acceptance of well-being. One thing that we're doing at Marlin ISD, I make sure that we have, especially at our elementary level, we have weekly designed lessons with our counselors to where they're either pushing in classes or providing experience for children just to understand who they are as a person. I believe that a lot of honus this has to fall back on the school district. Some people might disagree. Well, we're not the parent. In my opinion, yes, you are. There is 925 students at Marlin ISD who have the last name Henson. It is a responsibility and an obligation to not just take care of them academically, but take care of their emotional and mental needs as well. Now, hope is never a strategy and goals are never good enough. We have to be deliberate in our training and working with our internal counseling staff who has prescribed lessons at the elementary, middle, and high school level knowing that our high school students sometimes can be somewhat challenging because they're 14 to 18 year old. And if we can just figure out what is that magic recipe to truly serve them and meet their needs and develop them, I think that we would be in a great and better place. But I would say in the Marlin Independent School District, we are very proactive in making sure that children feel like they belong to something, they're involved, and they have avenues to express themselves to adults or peers who will listen to them. So every, anything that's going on the inside, we can get that out and discuss it. You went from the pandemic straight into this awful tragedy in Uvalde, focusing on mental health in your school districts. Have you noticed anything within your student body as, as far as their mental health and the need for more counseling and, and talking and those services? One of the things that we did is we hired social-emotional learning specialists for every campus, and they all have a caseload, if you will, of uh, students that they check on very regularly. Uh, some students are reluctant um, and maybe a bit apprehensive uh, to go to a counselor, even though they know that they're there for them. Uh, so, you know, we have people going to them, as Dr. Hens mentioned, very deliberately uh, and sitting down and talking to them. And, and many of them had to adjust School for a lot of students um, is, a, is more of a permanent place than a transitory place, at least for a lot of our uh, students. And so um, when they lost that for a while and uh, were at home, uh, that was very difficult. So we had to get them acclimated back. We had summer camps to where we were doing that uh, before the following year to get them you know, back into socializing and trying to normalize the environment uh, and reconnect with one another without fear uh, and, and with trust. And so those are pieces that we really focused on, uh, you know, following the pandemic and then obviously following um, uh, the tragedy of Uvalde. So I, I think staying connected 
making sure that our teachers were uh, doing restorative circles and meeting with students in different ways that they had before. Uh, we did a lot of training on that. Uh, and then we put a lot of money into it in hiring our social emotional learning specialists. Uh, and we've added counselors uh, in addition to our existing staff on some of our campuses as well. Dr. Proctor, anything to add? Yeah, um, I, I, the unique dynamic of tragedies coming off of the pandemic, um, there was an emotional toll on our kiddos um, that I don't know that we fully anticipated. When they, when they began to return to school, um, I, I think that we underestimated uh, the toll that it took on our kiddos. Um, and it took us, I feel like this spring, in conversations with our counseling staff and with our administrative staff and with our teachers, um, we feel like, we feel like we're, we're settling into this new normal just now. We, we brought in social workers um, and hired them uh, that are there for emotional support. They have a degree certification specifically for that in addition to our uh, counselors. So we've invested an enormous amount of money and resources into making sure that our, our students' mental health is, is the best that it can be. You just heard district leaders discussing how they provide resources for emotional learning since the tragedy in Uvalde. For a closer look at those resources, we've invited two mental health professionals who work in Central Texas schools. With us, we have Jenny Yannick, the coordinator for counseling services and regional crisis response for Region 12, which is an educational service center that serves several districts in our area. We also have Rhonda Burnell, the director of behavioral support services at Coppers Cove. ISD, we want to thank you both for being here yes, with you. us today. As we look back right over this last year since this tragedy, can you just kind of talk to us about how your individual roles have changed since uh, that incident happened? We'll start with you, Rhonda. Sure. So I don't really see that it's changed. I feel that it has expanded. We were already doing what we could do to best possibly serve the students. And since Uvalde, it has reaffirmed that what we were doing were all the right things. And we have expanded those supports and services that we now offer to students, parents, families, whoever is in need or whatever the need is. Our district really works hard in partnership with families and parents because we see not only the student, but the student is a part of a family group. And so we provide support to families as much as we possibly can and in the best way possible. So Jenny, within Region 12, those services that were already in place and that you helped Coppers Cove ISD with, did you see more of an interest in those services that were already there since Uvalde? I would say probably a more awareness uh, in addition to what Rhonda's talking about for the expansion and, and ensuring that we connect our schools with these resources and tools and the mandates that have come down through the state that we want to support our schools and our region, make sure that they have the things that they need and we are offering services that, that complement and support what they're doing to take care of their staff and their kids. Can you also talk about the emergency crisis team that Region 12 has? I understand that it's even unique. Uh, not every region in Texas has such yes. a Yes. Uh, the crisis response team is comprised of, of internal individuals, but also with some of our counselors who are in, in, in different schools who have offered to come uh, to the aid of another district. If there is a loss or a tragedy that happens, uh, we're very blessed in Region 12 and our 12 counties that we have schools that watch out for each other. Mm -hmm. And they partner sometimes and learn from one another or lend 
that help. Uh, we go to help schools with stabilizing an environment, resuming operations, and providing additional resources and supports. Many times they have to do with additional supports in mental health. Well, one year after the tragedy in Uvalde, I know you said some of these, many of these programs were already in place prior to this tragedy, but is there a way that you can measure the success of some of these programs in the past year? So we survey our students, we get feedback from our students in, in multiple different ways. We then take this data and utilize that data to understand what are our students' perspectives. Um, and students are very much so aware of what it is that they need or their perspective of what they need. And so we consider ourselves very lucky that we have access to this feedback from our students. We utilize that data to cultivate um, social emotional learning. We have that built into our schedule and curriculum throughout our district, so every day, teach provide SEL in their classrooms and then the, the counselors go into the classrooms and provide additional support and so being very intentional about the work that we do in Cove has garnered us some significant positive outcomes with our students and so we um, are very fortunate to be able to have that data and a way to get that data from our students. What are some ways parents can get involved in some of the programs you're talking about? Um, so some of the programs that we have just recently, um, this past March, we did in a family engagement day. And so this was offered to all of the families in the district. And during spring break, when students are typically off, we had over 150 families show up to participate in this event. And the event was all about skills. So the students were able to go out and work with some of our counselors who came out on their time off, and they learned social skills. So they roundtabled and they went and they um, worked on different skill sets that maybe they could benefit more from. While the students did that, we partnered with our community partners and they worked with the parents. They provided parenting classes, um, teaching parents ways to help them deal with their students who were struggling emotionally, even helping parents to understand when they are struggling emotionally, what the impact of that could be to their students. And parents were fully engaged. I remember one of the exercises that they did, we went from having one post-it on the board to each family getting up and adding more post-its. And so that particular activity challenged the parents to say, hey, this is an area that I'm struggling in. And they were very vulnerable in that moment and they were fully engaged in the program. And so it was a full day for our parents and our students. Jenny, why is it so important that parents are part of this conversation and that their role is, is pivotal in, in a child's well-being, right? Because when we see our communities connected to our schools, and especially the people that are in those schools, we know that our kids are surrounded completely by a caring team of personal and professional relationships. Uh, we know that the more that that interaction happens, the more support there is for children. Um, we have cited, and in our trainings many times, we talk about uh, school safety and how relationships play a role in that. There are FBI, Secret Service, Department of Homeland Security briefs, researches, research briefs we all read, and they all say the same thing, that if every child has a safe and healthy relationship with a trusted adult, just that one component can help with their overall health and well-being, and it contributes to the climate and the culture and the safety of that school. So it becomes incumbent on us, not just as school personnel, but reaching across and holding hands with our parents in our communities, right. because that not only helps our children grow up to be strong, but it keeps our schools safe. Ladies, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation yes. for your time today. Thank Such you for having us. An important discussion, and we're gonna be back with some final thoughts from our panelists after this. 
We began this special coverage tonight with the 21 faces of those we lost one year ago in the Robb Elementary School shooting in Uvalde. We will leave you with their photos and final comments from our panelists. We want to thank everyone who contributed to this conversation. We have to use our voices. We have to participate not only in Austin every other year, but within our local communities. And I think it's just highly important that we do not give up hope and we just continue keeping on. Despite the tragedy of Uvalde, the recent one in Allen, we can't become desensitized to that. That cannot be acceptable as the new norm. We can't fall into a pattern of this is just the way it is. This is unacceptable. I think if um, school safety is a priority, uh, you have to fund it appropriately. Um, you have to uh, challenge traditional thinking that um, tragedy can be averted uh, by grant or unfunded mandates. That is not what will make us successful. Um, making us successful will, will really be the legwork at the foundational level with the relationships, continuing to train, continuing to practice, continuing to exercise the plans um, so that we continue to learn. We have a lot of students that have been heroes in our school district because they have alerted us to things and allowed us to get ahead, allowed us to work very close before anything ever happened with police force. We've had, we have a lot of parents in the community and grandparents that are heroes for doing that too. Uh, they give us a chance to get ahead. Uh, you don't have to wait to communicate something uh, that just doesn't seem right for administration to do the communicating or uh, law enforcement. So, um, you know, this communication thing's two-way, and I just want to encourage, keep encouraging our families. Uh, you know, we're all in it together, right? We're all here for one another. We're all trying to protect one another. We're all trying to serve one another. Uh, so we need to look out for each other, and it's a responsibility we all have.